Hi everyone, my name is Kevin. And my name is Sarah. And you are listening to a preview episode of the podcast Hot Town Summer in the Cine. Uh, it's an absolute rad title. It makes me uh, lose myself to 80s tunes right away. Um, I think it's 70s. Is it? Maybe oh, 60s. I know. This, this, this is going to be a fact checker's nightmare. Um, <laughs> this whole podcast from beginning to end is going to be like, do you know anything about movies? Um, anyways, as I said, Hot Town, Summer in the City. Uh, and what this podcast is, is this is a look at summer movies and their box office and some of the history and context behind them. And we're going to start by looking at the season of 1989. And, um, big year. Big year. Huge year. Huge year. So I thought what would be a good thing to do is uh, to dig into why this topic, of all the things to do, of all the years to start with, uh, why 1989 and why summer movies. So Sarah, why did you agree to do this? Because it's hard for me to say no when people ask me to do things. Um, but mostly because I love movies. I love all kinds of movies. I have really specific memories connected to blockbusters and all kinds of movies. I think blockbusters are really interesting on a few levels in terms of the, you know, capitalism, the social impact of them. I think our nostalgia, our connection to nostalgia, um, why we are attracted to certain blockbusters, I think anything that is so kind of powerful and so much a part of people's experience of the movies is really interesting to explore more. Totally. And I, I, I echo those things. I just can't say them as eloquently. Oh, but wow. um, for me, I think what I love is some of my earliest memories of movies are very much going to a film that an eight-year-old me had no business seeing in a movie theater. <laughs> But um, thanks, Barbara. Now, <laughs> just being, just getting to escape yes. uh, in the movies, yes. and I think summer box office blockbusters—they uh, may not be the most artistically brilliant films at times, but they are pure escapism, um, especially uh, when you're a little younger and you're a little less cynical. And so I think that intrigues me. But there's this other element where um, you know blockbusters by their nature need to be mass culture like they need to actually be seen by a lot of people and they need to actually have some like commercial business success mm -hmm. as well and I think that really intrigues me a lot right like where business this idea of this thing needs to actually make some money because we've put a lot, a lot of, of money, money and time money. into it uh, but also this thing needs to be a coherent film when those two things come together I just think that's a super interesting topic and I think there's a lot to dig into here and some of the least coherent movies have made the most money it is Sometimes. true it is true um and sadly some of my favorite movies uh are the <laughs> least coherent movies and that's okay our definition of blockbuster a thing of great power or size in particular a movie book or other product that is a great commercial success also interestingly from the 1940s, blockbuster, denoting a huge aerial bomb capable of destroying a whole block of streets, which we also have seen in many blockbusters. <laughs> this is true. So connections everywhere. Everywhere. Um, this is probably a good spot also to introduce ourselves a little bit and uh, who we are, what gives us any kind of right to talk to you about this, uh, and maybe even a little bit of why, why digging into this year. So... 
Um, Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, we have no right to be talking about this, but we are, <laughs> and we're very excited. Um, we both love movies. I think Kevin, maybe more than anybody I know, and also loves movies widely. <laughs> we'll talk more about that when we get into the romantic comedy uh, episode. Um, so we are just enthusiastic, basically. That's our cred, is our enthusiasm. Um, and yeah, hopefully you can join in. Also, if you have a better recommendation for a title of the podcast, just let us know. We're happy to, uh, take listener advice. Oh, I have no problem taking notes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I have no formal training, but if 10,000 hours of something makes you an expert, <laughs> yes, then I master. am, I'm a master, master beyond belief, uh, at this. So, um, I have given a lot of my life and time to movies, um, and, Again, especially uh, these style of movies. And I think a few years ago for me, I started to get interested, as I think a lot of people did, in actually tracking the like the box office of these movies. Like, how much money did this movie cost? How much money did this movie make? And as I dug into that, I really sort of realized that, um, obviously, Jaws is where a lot of this starts. But um, going back to something that's a little bit easier to dig into and, and I have a little bit more memory of... Um, Batman is this big moment in the idea of summer movies and the idea of um, uh, the business of film. It's a it's a bit of a turning point, which we'll touch on here. So. Which leads into Jurassic Park, one of my first blockbusters that I saw in theater. And um, Spielberg wanted to make, what was it, Jaws on land. Yeah. That's what Jurassic Park was. So I think he succeeded pretty well in terms of the terror and the intensity of the adventure. And honestly, what's crazy too is, I mean, we'll touch on that if we ever get that far, but seeing that film in a theater versus seeing it at home is like, I love it at home. Don't get me wrong, but I got to see it in one of those like, um, retro, retro viewings a couple years ago in a theater. And I was like, oh, this is the greatest thing that's ever been put to film. Um, and I was far too young to be seeing that in theater as well <laughs> and still enjoyed it. So there we go. So I thought it'd also be great to chat a little bit about what are some of the goals? What are some of the things that we hope uh, this podcast kind of um, piques your interest in and what's maybe some conversation you get to have? Um, and I'll start with a couple simple ones. Um, I hope that this gets people revisiting movies and rewatching some movies. Like I, I think you can absolutely listen to a podcast that talks about the film Batman without watching Batman. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I feel like it'd be more fun if you're like, oh, I have notes uh, as you watch it. Um, so that's, I mean, a very simple, straightforward thing I hope comes out of it. We can also recap and then people don't have to watch the whole thing. Genuinely, I, I think it's probably fair to people to yeah, assume that not everyone, is. you know, is going to watch it alongside. Um, yeah. But I, I think, Sarah, you, as we started digging into this and what interested you, you had some really um, fascinating stuff you wanted to also get have us cover. Yeah. Well, I was super interested in when we were talking about our earliest experiences of blockbusters and our childhoods. And I was just actually talking about Jaws. I remember when I was a kid and my dad told me that after he saw Jaws, he could not swim in Graham Lake, which is the tiny lake on Dunman Island, for six months. And it was like the hottest summer, and he just could not swim in the lake because of Jaws. And I thought, like, my dad wasn't scared of anything. And then he told me that Jaws, you know, prevented him from swimming, which is his favorite thing. So that, to me, was like, this is the power of movies, that my father is terrified of swimming in the lake. <clears throat> I didn't think of this. I, uh, with Terminator 2... I remember, and again, this is like, man, kids at a certain age should not watch things. Because I thought, 
I was waiting for August 1997 to wrap up because that's the oh. year in that film that Judgment Day and the Nuclear Holocaust happens. <laughs> yes. so I generally remember waiting. And again, that that's like five years after the film. And so I just was like, we we did it. Like <laughs> We made it. We made it. Judgment Day did not happen. So that is just fascinating so to me. Good. Uh, There's also a fascinating article I read in the Harvard Business Review a few years ago a few years ago called The Nostalgia Trap, and we can maybe link to it in the podcast, where it talks about this, um, the revival of a pernicious form of nostalgia. They call it past sickness. This is the longing to reproduce an idealized piece of history. And there I'm quoting. So I think we, and we can talk about how different generations are maybe more or less nostalgic, but I think this is a way for us to definitely experience nostalgia and whether that's, you know, to our detriment or not, we'll find out. Well, and it, it is interesting, like, you know, you brought that topic up and I, I thought of a couple things. Like one, I thought of um, movies I watched as a kid without any kind of critical lens of just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, big lights, big sound, this is amazing. It's um, so pure though. Pure, but then, you know, having to rewatch it and be like, okay, it turns out that that person can't act. Or it turns, turns out, out the world isn't going to end in 1997. It's true. It's true. But the other part of it, when you talked about nostalgia, that got me thinking that like, oh my gosh, that is me. Like it could just be middle-agedness. But I also <laughs> I also think there's something to be said for, I, I think we all like digging back into this time right now because it's frankly a little easier and it's a little less complicated than the um, chaotic mess we call our, our everyday right now. And so I think... There is something that's very uh, intoxicating about nostalgia. And so if we can ride that wave to get people to listen to this, like, amen, bring it on. And we can look at different generations like the boomers revisiting their youth in 90s films like Dazed and Confused, Forrest Gump, Boogie Nights. Um, Pretty interesting. They might be the most nostalgic generation. We'll see. Um, 1989 also feels like the cusp of something big in terms of what is going on in the world. The Berlin Wall comes down in November 89. The first Game Boy is released by Nintendo. I like that that's as far as I am not saying that those are equal things. When we think of all the scope of human accomplishment in 1989, (laughs) it's the Berlin Wall, the end of people's restrictive, uh, you know, your inability to travel around with freedom. And, and Game Boy. Game Boy. Yeah. Which was pretty defining for me, I would say, in the 90s yeah. and 2000s. Yeah. Um, we also have a big shift in music and um, culture around that. So um, Chuck Klosterman's book, The 90s, that came out this past year, which I read this summer, he talks about the differences in music from, say, 1987. We're looking at, you know, Rick Astley, Bananarama, The Bangles, to even five years later in 1992 with TLC, The Cure, House of Pain, Criss Cross. Um, that's a pretty extreme shift. So the move to sub-pop, grunge, hip-hop, etc. And I, you know, I, I think that also brings back to, again, this idea of the intersection of business and art. Because even mm-hmm. a lot of those things you described, that is someone realizing, hey, this little mini music scene in like... Uh, Seattle? In Seattle Tacoma. or Compton or all these different places, I can market it yes. and I can make money off it. And 
Um, Culture is shifting before our eyes. Totally. And I, I think movies is this amazing uh, way to kind of look at that. But also, again, if you're like, honest to goodness, I just want to watch some fun movies. Like, I, I sincerely swear we will also do that too. So <laughs> um, big lofty goals, goofy silly goals, but ultimately just hopefully it's a good hang uh, watching some fun movies and chatting about them. So why don't we uh, stoke that nostalgia uh, itch that people have? And I thought it'd be neat to just ask the fun question of what is one of your like first movie memories, especially when we think summer movies. Um, is it like Sarah, is it you being in a theater? What are some of the early memories? Like what, besides you not being able to say no to me, uh, what, <laughs> what kind of made you think, oh yeah, this makes me want to revisit this, this topic. Question. So I remember, well, I, I did see Jurassic Park. I was probably too young, but my parents gave in. I think because a bunch of kids in my class went, and my dad really wanted to see it. (laughs) And loved also True Lies, which I think came out after maybe 1990, 91? Oh, a little later than that, because it's post-Terminator 2. I think it's like 90. Which I loved, which was also a little racy. There's a Jamie Lee Curtis striptease. It's a lot. It's a lot it's racy. A lot. I saw that film at the drive-in movie theater Oof. with my family, and they're your family. <laughs> Just all kinds of surprises. They're phenomenal Very parents. Unassuming. They're phenomenal they're parents who who raise four of... children that are functioning adults. <laughs> I but mean, you they're... were number four, so they had stopped at a certain point. There, it's true. Stop trying. Um, Apollo thirteen. I also remember watching with my mom. Um, which I think was also nostalgic for boomer parents because it's like Apollo 13 felt like the wonder years of cinema that Mm -hmm. it was so, um, so sixties and specific. Um, so seeing the rescuers down under at the Metro town movie theater with my dad in 1990 was the first time I went to the movie theater, but I also have vague memories of who framed Roger Rabbit, which came out in 1988. So maybe it was, I think it was a double feature. And also being, like, so intrigued that there was a sexy cartoon rabbit. And the answer is Kathleen Turner was the sexy Jessica Rabbit. It's a husky voice. It was the it was all of it. I was just, like, my mind was blown. I was six years old, and that might have been my sexual awakening. <laughs> Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> cartoon Jessica Rabbit, where I was like, oh, this, I have not seen this before. Because I had not seen sexy cartoons before that. Which is a good thing, I will say. I, yeah. I don't know what the age is that that makes it ready, but here we go. So, yeah, and I think we got popcorn, and that was, like, a big deal because we didn't have, you know, we didn't do stuff like that in my family. We, like, just didn't have any money to do stuff like that. All of that makes me feel terrible for what I'm about to say because I feel like (laughs) movies were my third parent. Um, I have a couple memories that are early, but but uh, I remember trying to see Sword in the Stone as a kid and being terrified because of the lightning and the... Screaming because again, Disney movies from an early age are a lot. Um, but uh, what what probably grabs to this topic really well, and I think what made me want to start in '89 because I can generally remember movies from every summer after this. Um, but I remember begging my parents to go see Batman in the theater. You were one of those, I was one of those. Did you have a bat logo in your head? I shaved into the back of your head. Head. No, Pre-cut. I mean, for all my knocking of Barbanel on this thing, my, they, they at least knew enough want. They at least knew enough to say we will not do that to our son. So you didn't have a rat tail under your bat logo shaved into your crew cut. You like know what? I got so much 90s. other random Batman products, uh, like cards, toys. You uh, had the shampoo? 
I you honest to goodness you name it and I had it like I I think I even had a brief stint with Diet Coke that summer because they had a great commercial but uh I just remember being taken to the movie theater it was this uh movie theater in a mall by my house that doesn't exist anymore like most movie theaters got converted to a pottery barn um but it was uh amazing and I just um I, I again I love movies I love being able to go away and escape uh and just be lost uh, for a while in that so that's what really grabbed me. We could do a whole me. episode about movie theaters and malls. <sighs> There's so much to mind there. Clueless? We could talk about Clueless. See and this is the other funny thing is usually <laughs> I'm the guy who needs to like zero in on something and I'm the one being like let's, let's what just. What about this? Let's just start with this summer. So <laughs> anyways I again I think this is what you you start picking at this and you just I think you dig up a lot of interesting things and a lot of fun memories that are worth revisiting and and re-examining too. All right. So again, this is a preview episode, trying to actually give you a sense of what we're going to chat about. So I thought it would be good if we ended trying to give you a a one sentence pitch on some of the movies that we're going to cover, because we're not going to do the whole top 10 in 1989. um, But we are trying to do something that really kind of hits the flavor. And even in trying to pick these, we also looked at to both say, what are movies we want to revisit? But also what are movies where we think these are um, a bit of an indicative or a precursor for some of the themes and trends that sort of continue on after this. And Mm so um, we'll start with uh, the number one movie of that summer, um, which is Batman. And uh, Sarah, why don't you give me your as close to one sentence possible uh, pitch for why, why we talk about Batman. I have trouble with editing, so it will be a one to two sentence pitch. Batman, marketing to seven-year-olds works. Fun enough to inspire 75% of the boys in my elementary school to shave bat symbols into their hair. And bad enough for their parents to hate the film. Oh, man, we, have, we just have different upbringings and that <laughs> fascinates me. Uh, for me, I will just say that Batman is a hype marketing machine that also had a movie in there. Um, <laughs> in a way. Hidden away behind the marketing. I don't. Again, I'll just say it's. It literally, if you look at the poster, there are no words on it. It's just a logo, <laughs> and it was everywhere. I can't remember the movie, but I can remember that we had shampoo shaped in the, like, in the shape of a bat body, like oh, the yeah. torso of the Batman was the shampoo bottle. Hundred percent. I remember. I, I remember that. I remember Diet Coke commercials. I remember all of it. Um. So the other big thing from the summer of 1989 are sequels. Yes. So, um, so we have a few. We have, uh, there's Lethal Weapon 2, which I love. I think it's better than the first one. I It is better than the first one. And I think what's great about it is, you know, the first one is so dark. And the second one completely reinvents the film series. Definitely more gratuitous sex scenes. Yeah. Yeah. You could not not show Mel Gibson's butt in the 80s and 90s for some reason. And... There are some things Why would you that... hide that away? <laughs> Behind clothes or props. We did, and to be clear, we didn't know all the things we now know about Mel Gibson. <laughs> That's true. Um, but Lethal Weapon 2 comes out in that summer and has a big summer. Uh, Star Trek 5 comes out. We don't need to talk about that one. Um, Ghostbusters 2 comes out yes. that summer as well and is a, a bit of a, a whiff, although it makes a lot of money. Um, but the one we also thought was worth digging into uh, was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Number three. Number three. Uh, so Sarah, what is your one and a bit sentence pitch for um, Last Crusade? My least favorite of the trilogy. Why did Sean Connery receive a Golden Globe and BAFTA nomination for his performance? Spielberg does another estranged father movie. Sean Connery is only 12 years older than Harrison Ford and he's playing his father. 
you might have one of the least known takes that Last Crusade is your least favorite. Like, Spielberg and Lucas themselves have said they made this film because they felt so bad about Temple of Doom. Anyways, I just, I really look forward to getting into that argument with you. Um, for me, I think this is a sequel that really goes back and tries to um, capture the flavor of the original um, but also kind of really does, um, try and, I mean, we're talking about nostalgia, really tries to hit on the nostalgia of things. Like it's Spielberg being like, I love Sean Connery as James Bond. I want to try and use some of that. <laughs> and it's, uh, both of them saying we want to end on a high note. And they did until they thought, what if we revisit it and, and, and ruin that? But, um, and then it, they had to wait how many years to make the 2008. It's a little while. It's a little, <laughs> a little while. bit of a, break. a little while. 30 years, 20 years. Yeah, uh, as you can tell, two English uh, history students, not math people here. Um, <laughs> next film is uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Sarah, give us, our, give us our pitch. The most 90s movie to come out in 1989. It's so specific and so hilarious and so heartwarming, and I think it's too quirky to get made today. Yeah, I think it's great. I will say that this movie was also a phenom uh, in its day. There was... Um, an Epcot thing at Disney that lasted well into the 2000s from this film. Uh, but also, here's what's crazy, is this is the summer of Moranis. This, Great like, Canadian. You have Ghostbusters 2, where he tries yes. his sidekick comedic chops. Yes. You've got uh, Parenthood, where he yes, tries his dramatic brilliant. chops. He's amazing in it. And then you have Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, where someone's <laughs> like, what if we took that guy and made him a leading man? And I... <laughs> I just think we lived in a very different world. I have so much to say about Rick Moranis as the perfect hero. And we're going to talk about that when we get to that episode. There you go. Um, up next, we're in a little bit of a, a, a twofer. Um, when Harry Met Sally and Parenthood. Not uh, to be confused with the television show Parenthood. Truly not to be confused with the show, uh, the TV show. Because I have never seen the TV show. Me neither. There you go. Um, and this is about movies. But um, I'll I'll start. I'll say for me, when Harry met Sally, which has been very well talked about, discussed and examined, but it, it is really the prototype of the romantic comedy um, that basically people watch it, they see it, and then they try and emulate it for the next 15 years. It's kind of the diehard of romantic comedies that way, where people yeah. are like, that's what works. And it, and it holds up brilliantly. And with Parenthood, I, uh, I think it grabbed me because as a kid, I really wanted to watch this movie. Which I think just because Steve Martin's in it in a yes. weird cowboy outfit yes. in the trailer, but nothing else about that film is remotely funny or remotely meant for an eight-year-old. No. Um, and so I'm intrigued by that. It gets I, pretty dark, too. I, I think now in this stage of my life, that movie is going to hit completely different. Yes. So. Um, here's my synopsis. There is just so much chemistry between the folks in both of these films. Like, it just can't be faked. They seem to really love each other and connect. So it's so easy to buy into it. Um, just so lovable. So many levels. There you go. And then um, we're going to dip out of the top ten uh, for these two. Um, this one is, because uh, this is really also um, an interesting summer and an interesting turning point in film. So we have uh, the Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing, and the Steve Soderbergh movie, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Uh, so Sarah, why don't you... Tell us what uh, what makes you want to dive into these. Well, I haven't seen Sex, Lies, and Videotape for a while. I think Soderbergh is super interesting. And um, 
Do the Right Thing is one of my very favorite movies. I got to go to um, see, basically, almost see Spike Lee in person this summer in New York. I missed him by an hour, but um, I was in Fort Greene, and where his studio is, um, 40 Acres and Mule, and just about lost my mind because I was so excited. Um, It's a masterpiece that endures Do the Right Thing. And tragically was not nominated for Best Picture. But Just you know what was? Resonates on so many levels. Driving Miss Daisy. Oh, huh? no. <laughs> Don't get me started. Um, for me, I think what's interesting, I mean, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, they say, is the film that kind of really started Sundance. Um, and I think that's fascinating. I think, obviously, Do the Right Thing is this movie that uh, gave the world Spike Lee's career, really. And what's really interesting, even as we were just saying it and I was thinking about this sentence is both those as filmmakers are still doing pretty interesting inventive things like they're not and how many careers have they launched well fully and I also think like they keep making unique films like Steve Soderbergh tried to shoot a movie on an iPhone Steve Soderbergh took an MMA fighter and tried to make it into a movie star like he just keeps trying new things and Spike Lee as well just keeps you know, pushing the limit. Pushing the limit. And then everyone saw him making a movie like Inside Man that's just pure crowd yes. pleaser. With... Which we watched when we were in New York because I only wanted to watch New York things. And why York. Why wouldn't you if you're in New York? Right. Um, and the last one, and this is truly only if we don't hate this idea by the time we get to this one, is... <laughs> I kind of hate it already, but I'm willing <laughs> to go there. <laughs> is uh, I really want to look at the film The Abyss. And I will say this, this is a James Cameron movie. <laughs> and what's interesting, it's not only because Avatar is coming out uh, this Christmas, but um, James Cameron is obviously famously the man who makes these huge swings and makes these massive connects, right? The, um, you know, three, two of the top three You may movies, have heard of them. Two of the top three films of all time, basically, are, are James Cameron movies. But this one is a artistic and commercial swing and a miss. And that's interesting to me because he does not have those. Um, Sarah's, you're not all that excited to talk about Abyss. Well, I just... There's so many reasons that James Cameron is the worst. So I think I'm just annoyed by him and who he seems to be in general. Um, And the Abyss doesn't really help his cause or case. And I think he's also a bad Canadian. So... (laughs) He just seems very anti-Canadian, like the least Canadian Canadian. I just, it, again. It's fine, it's fine. I just think it's interesting that a guy is that cocky and has that much swagger, but then you also have to be like, but dang it, you actually have delivered. And that's Except for the abyss. Except for the abyss, <laughs> which is what we'll talk about. So those are our quick pitches, and uh, hopefully that grabs you and makes you want to dig in more. So yeah, that is a brief look at what we're hoping that a uh, hot town, suburb in the city uh to be enjoying the day or the night um kind of grabs you but uh i guess ultimately what we're really hoping here is that you uh have some fun watch some movies uh and enjoy talking about them and uh hopefully revisiting them but um yeah i also think some of those those bigger pictures too right like some of that examination of nostalgia and some of that examination of business and and art um how do we revisit something that we know or we think we know pretty well with kind of a new eye or a new lens. Yeah. And how do we also just say, hey, it's totally all right. I love this thing. Even if I can acknowledge it's not. <laughs> it's trash. Yeah. Yeah. It's so. okay to like trash. We all do. It's true. Some it's reason true. or another. Yeah. And that's the beauty of a movie. You don't have to, like, you don't always have to have lofty reasons why you like something. You can just love it. So, um, 
I'm excited. I think this is going to be fun. I'm really grateful my friend is willing to do this with me. And I'm uh, grateful for anyone who's willing to come along for the ride. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's dig in and let's re uh, let's re-explore the summer 89. Talk to you soon. Bye.